0: I often wonder, is Keane almost venting frustrations on behalf of his friend in that regard? I don't want to say he's got a blind spot to Solskjaer, but he's another former teammate who hasn't exactly kind of criticised Subscribe him. now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app.
1: Now you're welcome along to the Sunday Papers. Joe Malloy with you this morning. I'll start with the back pages as usual. So the Sunday World, first of all here, has a very happy Divock Origi and its Liverpool win at death. Thanks to Origi's Stunner, Wolves nil Liverpool won. And as you can see, there are celebrations on the back page of The Sunday World. Jurgen Klopp says, Divock Origi, the legend, finished it off. It's a great story. He's an incredible striker. For different reasons, he doesn't play that often. I hope one day he finds a manager that plays him more than I do. One of the best finishers I've ever seen in my life. That's Jurgen Klopp on the back page of The Sunday World. Also there is Ralph Rangnick. I'll do it your way. I'm not that far apart from Jurgen in terms of our ideas about his style of football. That's no secret, says Ralph Rangnick. Speaking to the media this week, Sun Sport again it's Rangnick all the way this time a picture of him and Alex Ferguson, a Ralph Fergie dinner date as he plus revival. So he's looking forward to sitting down with Alex Ferguson who's currently quarantining after returning from the states. Then we have the Sunday Times dramatic picture of Chelsea's goalkeeper Edward Mendy diving yesterday as West Ham's third flies into the top corner, West Ham 3 Chelsea 2. And then over on the right-hand side, Rangnick. United will be pressing monsters. Pressing monsters is what he wants from Manchester United. So that's the Sunday Times. Back page of the Mail on Sunday. It's Rangnick. It won't be a quick fix, is his lead. There's also a picture there of Origi after his goal for Liverpool. Again, new Manchester United boss, Ralph Rangnick, wants to turn his players into pressing monsters. Is, uh, I think, the line that's going to survive from his press conference this week. Sunday Independent, they have a Rigi to the rescue and they also have Rangnick. There is no quick fix to the problems. Then we have the uh, Sunday Mirror, Rangnick's Red Devils. I want pressing monsters again is the subheading there on the mirror and they've... Uh, West Ham celebrating their goal against Chelsea yesterday. The star beast mode. As you can imagine, this is Rangnick and wanting pressing monsters and also saying it's not going to be an instant fix. So... Pressing Monsters, not an instant fix. They are the two headlines for Ralph Rangnick. Very happy to say, we have a Foley with us. Hey, Clina.
2: Hi, Joe.
1: Morning. And Kieran O'Reillig joins us as well. Hi, hey, Kieran. Morning, Joe. Clina, I thought, to be honest, I was pretty much done with Ralph Rangnick profile pieces, but it's a Sunday <laughs> and here we are.
2: Can we say Pressing Monsters again, Joe?
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> he, he may live to regret that. He may live to regret that, I think. <laughs> so yeah
2: um yeah like it, it is amazing you know i i it, it just makes me laugh sometimes i mean gagging press is something that's you know i think 10 years ago most of it would have thought was a kitchen implement or something you know but now it's you know when something becomes demote you know it's in it's in and this whole you know call to the manager i've spoken about it before and this is you know but i do think it's overdone but there are a few there there are one or two interesting pieces today on him i, mean, I love tom mccann's piece which probably shares a bit of my own in the Sunday Independent. And there's a good piece as well in the Sunday Business Post, which takes a little bit of a different angle on it, which I thought were interesting.
1: Well, the Sunday Business Post, for instance, so he gets the profile treatment generally most weeks. The Sunday Business Post do a profile of somebody. It's not always a sports person, but it's Ralph Rangnick this week. And it's a pretty nice anecdote to start things off. So uh, Ralph Rangnick obviously was uh, in Leipzig for a time. And we hear from a journalist here, Gideon Schaffer. He's a football writer. And it was 6 a.m. His phone rings. He's not usually awake at that time, he says himself. He's more a 9 a.m., 10 a.m. kind of a guy. So Schaffer was a football writer for the city's biggest newspaper. Phone rings 6 in the morning. Ralph Rangnick appears on his phone and he thinks, OK, a better answer. And he says, "Uh, Guido, there's no newspaper in my letterbox. This is a problem, Guido. It's unbelievable. My newspaper's not at my house. It hasn't been delivered on time. Aguirre says, of course, I was surprised by the call. I asked him, are you still awake since last night or did you just wake up now? (laughs) And the piece goes on to say, Rangnick is a stereotype of German efficiency, very particular person with his day and tasks meticulously planned out. If something gets in the way of his system, it will be confronted head on. And that day had began, but not like Ralph Rangnick wanted. He didn't have his newspaper, Scharfer said. He loves every detail. That's his mindset. He's not like me. And it's sometimes not easy to handle, but he is a man who brought Orbi Leipzig to the Champions League. He's a perfectionist. He's a crazy guy. Sometimes he's so lovely, but always intense. And in some moments, he can be so hard to deal with and sometimes also loud. He's not an easy guy to work with. So that was a telling anecdote, I think, Klina.
2: Yeah, um I actually like this piece as well because it, it it's by Killian Woods and it, it goes into the history of uh, RB Leipzig as well, which I didn't know an awful lot about and mm. it might be interesting for some people to read it that wouldn't know as much about it. Um and the fact you know, the Red Bull took them over, and they were they were they're seen as a sort of corporate entity and it's really interesting to see where he's come from and where he's going to because the big I suppose the big thing about Rannick is that it's it's seen as he'll have the I suppose, the capacity to uh, motivate people on a personal level, but at the same time, he has to keep keep a corporation happy. And it's a very interesting uh, mixture. Like, I'm definitely on the Tommy Conlon side of it, but I do think this is a really interesting piece. It's obviously done mostly with one particular um, football writer in Germany, but he, um, he does say... He can. He says about running, he can be a difficult person in many ways. But for him, to think he wants is success, and he will do anything to be successful. Sometimes he forces too much, perhaps from perhaps from some staff and players. But in Leipzig, this is the way to be successful, and they loved him for that. So there is, you know, the presumption that everything is going to be, even if it is an interim appointment, is a is a is a big presumption. I think you know, there are a couple of other good pieces like about him. I just think there was a good piece. The Mail on Sunday do a good piece and sort of you know break down the background again and look at the fact that, that it isn't so much um, that his success in Germany was with, you know, they're making the point, I think, I think Tom, with Tommy Collins' piece, I suppose, summarises a lot of what I think about it. Sort of the cult of the manager, you know, and I, think, um, I don't know whether the two of you have had a look at it.
1: On the Killian Woods piece, I mean, the Orby Leipzig, the hatred of them in Germany is touched upon. The 50 plus one rule, I think, is fairly well known about at this stage and uh, some clubs have managed to circumvent it and with Leipzig, they did it by, well, Red Bull purchased 49% of the club, but then they ensured the rest of the shares were priced prohibitively. So any investors were carefully chosen by Red Bull, if you're wondering how they managed to get around that rule. And the ORB in Orby Leipzig doesn't in fact stand for Red Bull. It's short for Rasenball Sport, which is a word that isn't even a word. It's nonsense. Translated into English, it means sports played with a ball on a lawn. If you're wondering, so it's not Red Bull Leipzig, it's Sport Leipzig. There's one other point on the Sunday Business Post profile of Rangnick, and this has cropped up elsewhere. But if you're just wondering where he had his eureka moment or what really shaped him, he's been managing since the early 1980s. February 1983, side he was managing, played a friendly against Dynamo Kiev, the Ukrainian team a behemoth at the time. Valery Lobanovsky, tactical mastermind. He is recognised, along with Renus Michaels, the uh, Dutch coach, of course, as the inventor of total football. And Rangnick talks about the experience of that game. We chanced upon a genius that day. He said, a few minutes in when the ball had gone out for throwing, I had to stop and count their players. Did they have 13 or 14 men on the pitch? Kiev were the first team I'd ever come up against who systematically pressed the ball. That was my football epiphany. And I understood there was a different way to playing. So that was 19... 83. And one other point to mention then, Kieran, I get your thoughts on it all. He's called the football professor. Lots of the headlines rang Nick, the football professor. Uh, This stems from an appearance on television. So he had been going very well. He had uh, brought a couple of teams up through the divisions and he was appearing on, I suppose, the equivalent of Match of the Day in Germany. This was December 1998. He was the Ulm coach then, ULM. Uh, midway through whisking a modest club from the third tier to that top flight and so he's obviously hot stuff and he's on with the presenter Michael Steinbrecher the Gary Lineker of his day and so such was the innovation and the concepts that he presented not least uh, back four in which one of the centre-backs could act in a libero role that Steinbrecher felt he had to bullet point it all for the viewers at the end squeezing the space creating overloads all part of modern football parlance but it was alien to the game's nomenclature in uh, Germany in the late 1990s. And from that point on, he was called the football professor. Now, to be fair, I think they were lampooning him. A lot of the uh, coaches in Germany were lampooning him by calling him the professor after this appearance on television, but he's embraced the title since. Kieran, where are you and all this uh, Rangnick profile? I feel like there is a real cult of manager, isn't there? I mean, yeah. We, next yeah. manager rises, oh, so he brushes his teeth a certain way. And all this. these anecdotes used to display their genius, often overdone.
0: Yeah, lots of confirmation bias, you know, if he gets first, then that's what every aspiring coach should do. Um it's another interesting one in the sense that it's a coach coming in without really many winners' medals, any titles, any big titles or successes there. Um we've seen that quite a bit in recent times where the name is bigger than the achievements, but it hasn't he hasn't diminished his his light in any way. I mean, you look at Pochettino and, and the hype around Pochettino and the love and fetishization of, of him as a coach. Back to Bielsa, who again has had such a massive influence across the sport, across the globe. But there's not really a lot of titles there. I mean, I think you're you're probably going back 20 years before you see a proper a proper winner's uh, position there for him. Um, and I think Ragnik's similar to that. But what I find most interesting is... The way that there's just there's a bit more of an acceptance in in English soccer now as well for for these foreign coaches coming in with different ideas and a, a big difference in that regard. I mean, the, the rock and roll football is actually uh, I think it's a Ragnik quote first, and Klopp's kind of been inspired or in, influenced by him. But as 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 the Conan piece will show us in a little bit, there is I think Kleene has a, a kind of a certain cynicism of this kind of fascination with um, you know front players pressing like it's a it's a totally new idea like as you said there in that in the sunday business post we, you talk about seeing Labanovsky, you know just before world war world war two so he was no spring chicken and rob in fact is the coach i think ireland played one of their best games under jack charlton against the soviet union in Euro 88 and lobanovsky was the the manager of that team then and ireland played you know probably won their best games and and, and could have even beaten them so th- there's not really many new ideas but there is a fascination with wrapping up ideas and and give them a new marketing and a new packaging under a coach to make it sound think and I think that's what a lot of people are getting ticked off with with regards to rangnick coming in yeah but he speaks a lot of sense he's been very straightforward i liked reading a piece in in the um sunday times you know, And it's nice to see a coach come in who has such a clear idea of the game, how he wants it to be played, and talking about what he has there and how he can work with it and how he's going to implement it. And I think it's just exactly what United have been missing. And I think there might be a lot of excitement from coming in because he seems to bring with him exactly that which Man United has been lacking for a few years now. They've been jumping back and forth with different coaches, no set idea. And this is a guy who comes in with a lot of big ideas and like a very set idea he knows what he is he knows what he can bring he knows what his team what he wants them to play and that's exactly what they've been lacking i mean i'm a celtic fan and i've seen a guy come in from australia this 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 season and um i didn't know much about him at all but he is in a sense where he has a set definition and philosophy of the game very high pressing ironically enough or coincidentally enough and um you can see it straight away you can see what he wants to play and with me united over the last few years you haven't seen that and it can make such a difference to a team where everybody gets on the same message the um directions are straightforward and it might not be easy to play but it could be effective and i'm i'm very interested to see i've been of united for the last few years but i'm interested to see if the, if the talk can be back
1: yes well we'll Find out very shortly. There's people listening to this on a Monday morning, I'm sure, scoffing after Crystal Palace were 4-0 winners. (laughs) So we'll move on, I think, before we get ourselves into trouble here. So uh, this is not strictly in the sports section, but I think it's worth a mention all the same. This is in the Sunday Independent People and Culture section. It's their cover story. And it's Frances Crowley, the wife of the late jockey Pat Smullen. Pat didn't realise how short a time he had left. And she's pictured there in the front page with the horse. And then. Three page uh, spread inside. So um, there's a new book out, Uh, Francis Crowley's talking about the new book, Champion, which I suppose was written in conjunction with Pat before he passed away. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2017, which is generally a fairly devastating diagnosis, obviously. And it's been published now just over a year after his death, which was September 2020. He was just 43 years of age, an Irish flat racing champion jockey in Ireland nine times. He rode nearly 2000 winners. Epsom Derby, Irish Derby, rode for uh, the top owners and trainers all around the world, and Francis Crowley here talking about his um, childhood and very much a working class family, and they have three children together, and I suppose it's it's at the end, cleaner where it's maybe the most affecting, where they're um, realizing that things aren't going well. Initially, there had been um, a stent in his bile duct and Mm. a 12 week course of chemotherapy aimed at shrinking the tumour on his pancreas to operable size. And the operation lasted seven hours and it was deemed a success. And then there was more chemotherapy and daily medication. And unfortunately, that stopped working at a certain point. And by June 2020, he was told the cancer had grown and spread. By the end of July, Francis was pleading with him to go into hospital where she hoped his pain could be managed better. He was reluctant, afraid that if he went in, he wouldn't come out. This is all in the final chapter of the book Champion. We never really admitted that he was dying, she says. Now, I don't think we could go there. How we coped with it was always saying we were still trying to find something to roll back against the cancer. And she talked about crying in the car on the way down to Vincent's hospital so Pat wouldn't see her cry and then crying on the way home before she got home to the children so they wouldn't see her cry. It was a difficult time. I'm not sure how you go through those times. Uh, You wonder how you coped with all the feelings of fear and worrying about the future. Looking back, it was very difficult, but I have a way of taking things and sort of putting them away. I suppose a lot of women do it. Being able to get on with life, package away other things and deal with the present. And uh, what she talks now about trying to find comfort in in signs and, and talks to Pat and talks to him all the time. And she'll ask him, I hope you're somewhere nice and peaceful and She says one time she did it and the lights just went off. It wasn't a fuse or a fault. A few weeks later, I said, I really think you are happy and at peace. At that second, a light popped on in my room and flashed three times. And then she mentioned being in the car with her daughter. We were talking about how we felt Pat was at peace. The volume on the radio just started changing on its own, moving between three and four on the dial. It felt like he was answering us that it was uh, such an intense peace. He had to let us know Hannah. Her daughter kept saying those numbers are significant. A few weeks later, she twigged those numbers. It's the age he was, 43. Uh, she said, it's lovely that we have something that we can feel that he's here. It may be complete rubbish, but I don't think it is because the things that happen are just too coincidental. I fully believe that it's him. Desperately sad, Kleena.
2: Yeah, I'm um, really interesting, I, I think, because like it, Francis herself was a two time Irish.
1: Oh, I think your Wi-Fi is gone. Sorry, we're having one of those mornings, unfortunately. We'll try and get you back cleaner, or maybe even on the phone at this stage. Ronan will get you back now in just a moment. Kieran, I'm sure you read the piece as well.
0: Yeah, actually it was one one little bit that stood out to me a little bit. Um I wouldn't have known a lot about about the piece, but one of the things that, that's popped up a lot in, in professional sports is about this the selfishness of, you know, the athletes. And there was a bit where she was she was writing about the the racing ambitions as, as selfish. Uh, Sorry, he'd written about his pursuit of racing ambitions as selfish. So Francis was asked about this and she said, absolutely, he was selfish. Um, That's just the way it is to be successful. You have to be like that. I understand that. Uh, Looking back, maybe if I was a different person, maybe I could have tempered this. I'm able to say this family is more important than always being so focused on the racing. Um, But again, she says, you know, I thought it was completely normal to be like this. There was no conflict for me if we weren't going to a wedding or if he was missing the kids communion. And like I often kind of wonder how, how you know how genuine people are when they look back in their lives as a as a you know like the the famous golf widows or the like Alex Ferguson's wife where he says when he's turning you know he's in his seventies he said I should give Kathy a bit funny them ones especially when a life is is kind of ended prematurely when when Pat was so young. And she kind of looks there and says, I never thought she's going to, into labor with her her youngest child, Sarah. She says, I never for a minute thought he should come with me to the hospital. Mm. I wouldn't have even asked him. Uh, I was totally complicit in his choices as a father and a husband. And you just wonder, like, is there any regrets in that regard? She seems to be quite accepting of it there because that's what he was. That's who he that's who he was. That's what he is. Um I, I often think we don't really you know we don't really hear a lot of that from the other side in families in people who are successful in the sporting era and you know you remember Trapattoni giving out to players who wanted to be missing a match because of the birth of a child or something and I think things are changing but Pat Smollin was quite young and it's 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 an interesting to get that bit of an insight on, on things that's what kind of stood out to me a bit
1: yeah she certainly says they were very much a team on that front and they understood yeah. this doesn't work if you can't be the best that you want to be and I want to be part of you being the best that you want to be mm. and it wasn't that she just you know that they drifted into this situation it seems like it was a conscious choice as a family
0: yeah yeah well she said she had a policy that she'd never out with a jockey so that didn't really work out <laughs> too well she said uh, he was different he was very gentle so focused on his career there was something different about him um, and, and that attracted him but you know I, I just I do I just kind of from watching it from the outside you'd wonder you know if, if make a few more changes but i i suppose she's probably accepting of it now at this stage
1: yeah no i don't get the sense of regret at all to be honest i I was down at the house oh right Uh, i think of the date now but um i mean they were so proud of what he'd achieved you know it was a big part of who they were so i don't think they saw a ray you know and and Francis Crowley very much of racing stock and understands what it's all about obviously and a yeah. brilliant trainer in her own right so I think that you know it, it, his success was all around the house and they understood that it was a team effort I think and uh, they were very mm-hmm. proud of it and the point she makes about him, him being very gentle I totally understand what she means there he a really calm gentle presence as a person mm-hmm. he was so determined I remember being struck by the fact that he says I am going to beat this I'm not going to I'm not going to die, you know, absolutely. He couldn't have uh, approached it, I suspect, with more diligence. And uh, sometimes there's just no fairness and it's not about how much effort you put into it. So um, it's a new book and she hopes it will do very well. And uh, she's uh, ultimately, she said she got just great joy from writing it. It was with Don McLean. So that's in the people and culture section of the Sunday Independent. An interview there with Frances Crowley, the wife of the late jockey Pat Smullen. We're still in the process of getting cleaner back, so we'll press on. You picked out a piece on Tiger Woods. What grabbed you about this? This is Eamon Sweeney on the back page. Tiger Woods making headlines over the last couple of days for two reasons. One, he's hosting a tournament in the Bahamas, so he spoke to the media for the first time since his car accident in February. And also, he broke the golfing internet. I don't think he quite broke the internet, but he broke the golfing internet by putting up a swing, a wedge, a single swing of a wedge. Hitting All a golf swing. ball for, Yeah, for the <laughs> first first time since February. And to be fair, there was a distinct chance, a very distinct chance that his leg was going to be amputated in February. So the fact that he was back swinging a club was due course for celebration. If you're a golf fan and you're clinging, clinging to a very faint hope you might see Woods back. So Eamon Sweeney, golf never had it so good as when it had Tiger. What grabbed you about this piece?
0: Yeah, well, to be honest, um, I, I, I kind of, I saw that clip that was put up, but I, I missed what you've you've just explained to me there, that he's hosting this event. I, I keep forgetting that golfers host events now, and um, I'd realised this tournament was on, but didn't realise Tiger was involved. So that's, that's probably where they're from. But i did hear quite a bit of talk during the week about about him and a potential comeback and you know i think he gave an interview where he said he doesn't really think he's going to ever compete again as in challenge you know at the top for a major he'll just pick and choose what what kind of tournaments he wants to turn up at and see if he can get out there and and swing along but this this piece just kind of was interesting to once again kind of contextualize what he's done um I think when you've kind of lived through it, you know, I would have seen him come through from the very start and you just kind of got to that level of expectant with him that, you know, he's just going to turn up. And, uh, you know, I was still in college when he, he started his, his run of six majors in three years. And you're looking back at that and thinking, Christ, like what, what did we actually have? And then seven and four years between 2005 and 2008 and just looking at uh put this into into black and white there just reminds you out to me was the point that he says you know tiger golf will never see anyone like tiger woods um and he said when he burst onto the scene in the late 1990s there was speculation that other african-american golfers might follow in his wake but they didn't and i know this wasn't this isn't the whole kind of this isn't the whole kernel of the article but I knew, you know, you're particularly into your golf as well. And I just thought that was a very interesting point to look back on now when we're trying to contextualize it and think, is this the end of the year? And And, you know, do you think it will change? Do you think there has been any kind of impact on the African-American, um, you know, the generation of kids who would have been able to watch this guy coming through? And I was almost thinking, you know, I'd actually be interested in your thoughts on this because you're so big into your golf. Like there hasn't been any great influx since. It's not been a Serena Williams and Venus Williams kind of influence where you do see some young black um, tennis players coming through. Why do you think or do you think there will be any?
1: At the honest answer is I don't especially know. It's complicated. Certainly it's prohibitively expensive for a huge portion of the population in the States, far most, more so than here. Golf isn't necessarily cheap here, but in mm-hmm. the States it's crazily Expensive, So that is definitely a barrier. The likes of a Tony Fina who's come through recently. I, yeah. mean, I don't think he played a golf course till he was about mid teens. You know, his father set up a, a quasi driving range in their shed. They couldn't afford driving range balls and they just did ball after yeah. ball into a net in their shed. And Tiger Woods, you know, similarly had to rely on the charity of others coming through when they realized he was talented and he was let play in places for free. So certainly the money is a big one. You might wonder still how welcoming golf mm. is. Um, If you're going to the local country club and you're the only non white face, do you necessarily feel at home there? All of these things, I'm sure, are brewing. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's complicated for sure. The only part of Eamon Sweeney's piece I wouldn't I would disagree with is where when he's talking about Woods in his heyday and how electric he was. He said golf Mm -hmm. never had it so good, even if it didn't quite appreciate what it had in Tiger Woods. Golf knew exactly what it had in Tiger Woods. Every second of every day across Woods' career, golf Mm -hmm. was down on bended knee, appreciative of Tiger Woods. There was no sense of golf taking Woods for granted. They couldn't believe it, like the amount of money he brought in was off the charts. The amount of attention he brought in was off the charts, the prize money absolutely exploded. Endorsements exploded. Uh, golf one hundred percent knew what it had in Tiger Woods yeah. every step of the way and couldn't believe its look clean and I guess Eamon Sweeney's point here really is that this, you know, who's gonna be the next Tiger? Will it be Rory? Will it be Jordan Spieth Is such a pointless question. There's never going to be anything close realistically in our lifetimes.
2: Yeah. No, and and also like I do, like it's an interesting question, definitely that Karen's asking. But you know, we have to say as well that prodigies. Usually have parents who are, you know, hugely influential, as we saw with Woods and a lot of other people. And their parents are usually pretty unique characters, um, and that's a big factor in it as well. Apart from, you know, finance, education, and lack of opportunities and everything else. I think it's interesting what you say as well about even though he was there, you know, when he looked around or when he was in a room, who who did he feel comfortable with? And that that actually links with another piece today, um, not related but related in some ways, I think, to to uh, Michael Foley's piece in the Sunday Times about um, the. Government brought in, and I was surprised it didn't get more attention this week. But they brought in um, this new uh, um, imperative for governing bodies to have up to up to forty, or to have forty percent actually of female um, uh, of females on their governance. And he looks at it in, in relation to women who have done it before in the GA. And it's really interesting from his piece. I think in in that context, because um, you know, one of I think it's Tracy who was the former chair in Cork says. You know, and she made it all the way to the top and says there were times where I sat in a room and thought there's nobody here I can talk to. I think that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, the head the headline of this piece by Michael Foley is any chance of a woman being given a seat? And there's a picture of uh, GA Central Council. And well, it's male all the way. I had missed that announcement as well during the week. Cleaner. I don't know why it wasn't bigger news. I guess there's a lot going on. So Sport Ireland, 40 percent female representation on Boards of every national governing body, a uh, failure to reach that target will result in financial penalties. So the GAs figure that's going to be based on their central council uh, three women currently serve on central council, which el- equates to 11 percent, according to figures collated in December last year. The average female representation across boards right through sport in the country is 29 percent. So they want to get it up to 40. It's expected to be 32 when the new figures yeah. are Announced, so GA has a way to go. If it's just at eleven percent, the average being thirty-two, so they want to get up to forty across the board.
2: Yeah, and I, 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 it is an interesting piece. I think um, because, like, Noreen Doherty was the Donegal secretary; she's quoted in it. Um, Tracy Kennedy became Cork chairperson; she's quoted in it. And both of their opinions, I think, are you know really valid and worth listening to. What's really interesting as well is that, according to GA figures, roughly a quarter of executive committee members at club level are women right and around two thirds of clubs have two or more women on their executive so i suppose the question to be asked then is why are they not making it through up to the top level at like central level and even maybe at at local level as well um nora hegerty nora remember she was uh, secretary in, in i think she was probably she was secretary in donegal and was there d- during a period of huge success for the county um and she she's very honest about it and and says that um, there are certain barriers that some women experience but by and large the feedback said women were put off by the heavy commitment family commitments that was the biggest reason why they couldn't commit to roles which is an interesting one and I do think that's a valid thing because I still think um, that, that women still carry the, the, the heavier side of that at home and also then Tracy says Tracy Kennedy says I had to work very hard to be taken seriously but that was as much down to my feeling as externally as time went on and I reflected on it more it was lonely at times a lack of having somebody else coming from similar experiences to my own, mm. there was nobody around the table who had similar experiences to me. I'd have liked more, I think and, though, and, those two things are telling. Uh, and because yeah, I
1: well, I, it just would strike me so I don't think personally anymore there's a not taken seriously aspect of the situation. But on your point about the commitments with family, didn't this mm-hmm. arise even during the pandemic when it became very apparent that even with both parents working from home and homeschooling? Uh, All the anecdotal and I think even behavioral science data collected showed that even in 2021, as progressive as we all are and men like to tell everyone they're changing nappies and everything else, still the burden in most households, the extra burden was falling on the female in the house. And even like it's across the board, you hear politicians talking about it, you hear so many. Uh, different uh, spheres talking about it that as much progression as there has been publicly still privately so much of the onus on child rearing and domesticity is falling on the female yeah and
2: i think domesticity is a good word for it as well you know it is that 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 area i'm I'm always stuck but i remember going to my very first ga congress years ago and and thinking the old monty python line came into my head in reverse i went are there any women here but literally it was i remember it was in the burlington it used to hold them back then and it was i think there were maybe three women in, in three women delegates in the room and everybody else was male and male a particular age as well like i think the age the age um the age profile of, of people working in the GA has come down hugely since then. And I think, as I said, I think at club level, there are a lot of women working at executive levels, but it's just, why do they not come through or why are they not up at the top level as well? Larry McCarthy has talked about it in the GA himself, you know, so it's an interesting one. But it is, I haven't seen people notice this. And, and when uh, when it was originally mooted a couple of years ago, there was a row between two government ministers at the time. One said it should be brought in, and then the other one quickly slapped it down and said it wasn't the senior minister, which was Shane Ross at the time. Um, but it, it came in this week, and it was very subtle. It wasn't there, and I'm not sure that people have noticed that it is there, and mm-hmm. it will ask some questions of. Um, and also, there's always this thing of women in leadership. They they need to have people uh, like there needs to be more. They. They feel they need more mentoring. They feel they need more support in leadership roles very often than men. There is that psychological thing that comes up time and time again. So, and it is interesting, I know from the ladies football and Camogie both have very strong leadership programs and so does the GPA now. Um, So maybe the GA, that may be something as well that they're going to have to be thinking about.
1: Yeah, Mick Foley does point out here. So the Camogie Association of 77% female representation and their executive and the Ladies Gaelic Football Association of 57% merging one or both with the GEA would go a long way to equalising the number. So then maybe that's another route which could be taken as well. So that's page 10 and 11 of the Sunday Times. Kieran, we were, I think, dismissing our general um, wariness with the cult of the manager at this stage. Mm -hmm. But what does catch the eye is that on page 6 of the Sunday Times, we have Jonathan Northcroft, who is not really bothered about the Republic of Ireland at all. So Anthony Barry has come on board with Stephen Kenny, you would imagine. And there have been plenty of Anthony Barry pieces in the Irish media. Who is this guy? And let's find out about him. Whereas yeah. it's quite striking here that Anthony Barry, even over in the UK, where there are any number of managerial um, prodigies to be profiled, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Anthony Barry makes the cut here. Uh, the Barry effect. Uh, journeyman turned set piece guru. watched 16,380 throw ins to hone his craft. So what really caught the eye here in this piece is the 2020 graduates from the FA's pro license, right, Jonathan Northcroft. One candidate stood out. Uh, The cohort included Frank Lampard, Michael Carrick, Colo Torre and the rising MK Dons manager, Lee Manning. But they all agreed that the star, the star of the class of 2020 was Anthony Barry, 35 years of age. And uh, Jonathan Northcroft paints a brilliant picture of somebody who's worked outrageously hard Even, you know, in advance of presentations at the course, he didn't feel confident about doing it. So he hired a presentation coach. He went to various schools and did talks and built up his confidence. Now presenting the scene is one of his great strengths. In Chelsea's tactical meetings, he's second up after Tuchel, for instance. And his, I guess it's a thesis, really, isn't it? His thesis Mm. was the only thesis from that class of 2020. Again, Lampard, Carrick, Colo His was the only one published and it it was basically um, disrupting. All the received wisdom on throw-ins, for instance. Again, so it's minutiae of the game, but this is an absolutely glowing piece on Anthony Barry by an English journalist. This is not about Ireland. Did make me think. Stephen Kenny's been very shrewd here.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I actually I had to look back and see um, a quote from Damien Duff when when he was stepping down, and he said, "It's not ideal for the manager. I know that, but at the same time, it's a chance to bring in a better coach than." God, Duff hasn't explained everything to us, but I think he might have gotten that right. When we've gotten somebody in with this kind of um, skill set, and the amount of the amount of positivity that comes through in this article about him is quite something. With you know Tuchel giving him a mention after you know games they've played, he says like Anders Christensen scored his first goal in 137 Chelsea appearances. Tuchel wrote in his programme notes, it's a good sign when Andreas starts to co- to score. And I think our set-piece coach, Anthony Barry, can be very, very proud. And some of the um some of the figures you mentioned there, uh, and some of them that are in this article, are, are quite incredible. Like Chelsea have scored 30 set-piece goals in 52 games since his arrival, particularly improving their effectiveness from corner kicks, while going from being the worst of the big six at defending set plays to the best. And um, interestingly, as you said there, there's not really any Irish soccer stuff around, but Northcroft talks about the impact on Ireland. Um, He says like in, in the nine months since he's been in, Ireland have been defeated just once and then they've scored 20 goals since his arrival, five from set pieces, where previously, as we all know, we were 11 hours without goals. So, I mean, just on a statistical basis there, even you can see an incredible impact from him. And I think the players have spoken really highly about him. Um, in the Irish Irish camp. So you'd wonder, can Stephen Kenny hold on to him really, isn't it? Yeah.
1: His uh, thesis, by the way, he he basically looked at 16,000 plus throw-ins Premier League season and he's uh, proven that the, well I suppose the conventional coaching from a young age, which is to throw the ball down the line to work the line, is wrong and teams should uh, go backwards or laterally and keep the ball and He's developed a correlation there with that and lead positions. So look, I mean, he could be right. That's an interesting. Sixteen thousand, Joe.
2: Sixteen thousand three hundred and eighty throw-ins. Think about
1: that. <laughs> he does seem to be a hard worker, cleaner. Five K run every day, <laughs> and uh, well, uh, but, but well, like yeah, I mean, that's taking hard work to a whole new level. But five K run every day and uh, seems, you know, threw himself into the. Uh, the the presentation side when he felt it wasn't a strength of his a bit like uh, Tuchel retired early his last game was 30 at Wrexham he had an injury
2: yeah, and it, as I said, what I think is interesting about this is exactly that, that it's not a perspective from the Ireland. It's an outsider looking at him and saying, this guy is, is good. And um, I thought it was really interesting that, um, and they quote the 42, because I've seen interviews done before uh, about him. But there was, the one I thought was interesting as well was that he didn't get on the LMA diploma in football management. He couldn't get in when he was in Wigan. But he wrote whatever he wrote in a letter to them, persuaded them to take him on because he yeah. didn't have stature at the time to take him on and he persuaded to do it and he has a degree in in his he has a levels in um in history and law and just he was obviously he, he was obviously always a very thoughtful academic kind of a guy but uh, yeah it's great it's it's very interesting to see this and in, in the light of what's going on in Ireland at the moment.
1: Kieran, lots of rugby pieces so we'll skip all the uh, match reports from the weekend there's a Robbie Henshaw interview across the Sunday papers really talking about the Lions tour and how Covid made them closer as a A group, a lot of playing cards and sitting together. And you you can imagine how that was the case. I suppose the big story at the moment is that the URC is in a state of chaos through nobody's own doing, really. Uh, Rory Keane in the Mail, for instance, and Brendan Fanning in the Sunday Independent are writing about this.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. And I think um, as a league, like they've had a very difficult um, just when they're trying to have a fresh start and they're trying to put out all the positive stories around it, you know, the growing um, you know viewership, which is obviously going to grow because more countries are showing the game the, the kind of Jay-Z link up all this kind of stuff, but I think they're still struggling and it's it's just something that's been a perennial for the league in whatever guise it's been for the last 10-15 years it's it's never really gotten a settled run under its feet, you know, you have the Magnus League, you have the Pro 12, you have the Guinness competition with the italian and the the south african teams coming in and then now you kind of get rid of two south african teams at very short notice try and bring four more in during a pandemic it's 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 been kind of chaotic chaotic all the time and you you kind of feel a little bit from the outside in as much as you can feel for a professional sporting organization you kind of feel that they haven't had that that set run a bit of stability um and and I, i think like rory looks at it and and he joins in with Matthew Morgan, who's a, a Cardiff player, who who was, um, I think he was in quarantine last week and he said the league was a shambles. And then he kind of had a go at the Welsh government for not allowing them to come back after, after their trip to South Africa and says, get us the F out of here, you clowns, which is the kind of stuff you don't really see from many leagues. And if the ORC wanted to be uh, a bit interesting, they might actually highlight this kind of stuff and say, look, this is a great league where you've got interesting sports, great characters, not afraid to say what they... I think Brendan Fanning is a bit more kind of um, understanding of the situation. You know, he's kind of saying, um, where's the phrase now? He he says like, you know, that sometimes, sorry, let me just find this quote. Excuse me for one second. You know, he's kind of talking about the, the fact the ideal scenario would be if you had a league which was made up of teams between England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales, and you had two divisions likely to happen so we just have to go what we have and he says you know sometimes you have to love the one you're with sometimes that's not easy when that partner claims to be the sexiest on the catwalk but so be it and you know he kind of says it's hard to be it's easy to be tearing the backside out of the urc for giving the south african teams their home games at home we thinks that's revisionist and wrong but you know again if you look at it you see in october um martin and I is the head of the urc was saying that um the the south- their games in Italy and then a week later it was changed back to South Africa so they, they haven't really helped themselves in that regard and of course every team should get to play at home but this year has been a bit of a mess and I, I just I, I see them trying so hard to create a new brand you know a brand new league a brand new name new you know the, the graphics and all the rest have been very impressive but you, you've still got a lot of hammerings you know from the ho- with home teams beating the visiting teams weakened sides players Now, this is just the latest thing to go wrong for them. And it's it's just kind of hard to see when and if this is going to ever work out properly. Um, That ideal British and Irish League would be great for, you know, for Irish teams. But the South African sides are, are chopping themselves up and moving here, there and everywhere. And there's no real, there's no easy outcome. So it's not, it's easy to have a go. You can try and be a bit more understanding in terms of how Fanning takes it. But I don't see any easy outcome for this and and any easy fix.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think he is right when he says the original scene is the British and Irish League, 22 teams, England involved can't happen. So Mm. you're always moving deck chairs in the Titanic. You're always scrambling for some kind of a solution. That's probably the, the ultimate, the core point on... Fanning's part. Like there's definitely a divergence of opinion which is what made the two pieces quite interesting. Brennan Fanning kind of saying look what can anyone do about this whereas Rory Keane has talked about well the initial plan was to play in Italy and then out of nowhere there was a big change. Munster didn't love that change even before Omicron became an issue and Rory Keane says why was there so much haste to stage games in South Africa as Van Graan noted a few months back a solid plan was already in place. It wasn't like the South African sides were going to bolster their coffers anyway, because only 2000 fully vaccinated fans were to be allowed into the various stadiums anyway. And he says uh, hindsight is a great thing and it's easy to stick the boot in when things go right. But this is another costly lesson for this competition. So, I mean, I suppose he's making the point there, clean it would seem that they had a plan. It was a stable enough plan is the first year of the competition, you know, and, and maybe caution might have been the word.
2: Yeah, well, I think, and I think a lot of us looking in from the outside go, why, why South Africa? Like, it just doesn't seem to me to be a logical thing. And now we know it's a logistical nightmare. And that's, you know, it's, it's as big omni channels as this, this Zoom link is today. Yeah. <laughs> like they've been hit by COVID okay and that was a disaster but um, what is what is interesting to me is like is the you know the, is the cost of being of bringing the South African clubs in worth it because actually this piece says it today and I, I'm always interested in money because money I think is the root of a lot of things but um, Brendan Fanning says that um, the U, the URC gives the travelling club 70 grand right to set against their expenses yeah. and he's saying like you know you'd be thinking normally I mean, that would be okay but actually he says depending on the club but the likelihood is that you'd be setting that 70 grand against an overall bill of 20 grand. You know, that seems. 200, to meet, I think. To, or sorry, 200 grand, rather, 200 grand. And that's seems to me to be you know god that just, just you know now at the moment it's clearly been a disaster but even if everything was working well at the moment does it warrant that and is there not a better solution and and is there a better way to find it like you know the south african clubs came in first they weren't good enough now we've got this other combination where they're, where they're you know trying to bring in much more competitive clubs. it just seems to me to be a weird fix yeah. um and even if COVID wasn't here it'd be it'd be really interesting to see how it all ba- balances out financially
1: yeah Rory Keane does and he just mentions it. It's a four word sentence. I often think of it with sport at the moment where he mentions there are other things to consider as well. And the sentence he has is carbon footprints for one end of sentence. It's just a throwaway line. It's not developed, but I am with him. I do look at so much sport at the moment and you do think the carbon footprint here is out of control and in 10, 20 years can we stand over this? Um, But anyway, that's that's uh, nobody's too worried about that. the moment it seems as we uh as we burn slowly Uh, i actually i actually
2: heard somebody from sorry joe i think i actually heard somebody from the international from the international tennis federation say that recently as well you know that you know if you if you're thinking about carbon footprint you know their future they have to think about how they do things in future as
1: well like what's the carbon footprint i wonder of the champions league every year must be enormous when you include fans as well Mm. We're not going to solve that. We can't even start Wi-Fi right now. We're not going to solve that. But, uh, we'll just leave that there. If anyone from government is listening, this is the Wi-Fi you've given us. This is where we are at the moment in 2021. So what have we done there? The Rugby, Anthony Barry touched on the GAA. Uh, within the GAA, cleaner, there were uh, a couple of things that caught your eye. We mentioned the executive situation. There's um, tributes to Kevin McMenamin. Dermot Crowe takes the angle in the Sunday Independent on Kevin McMenamin of not so much... Talking about what it means to Dublin, because Dublin obviously is, you know, um, flush with success now at this stage. But what it meant right the way through for a club like Jude's, Kevin McMenamin's club, to have McMenamin there was kind of a nice angle because, you know, he gave lots of great anecdotes of, for instance, uh, one um, uh, person that McMenamin had worked with, they all rented out the premium box in 2011, 300 quid ahead to watch him score that crucial goal against Kerry, and a couple of others along the way who you know their experience of dublin was yes dublin but it was very much through the prism of mcmanneman and i guess that's a that's probably a a nationwide experience for clubs around the country that they're watching the county through their own guy
2: yeah and i think you can identify i think a lot of people could identify with this with the piece the way dermot Road did it which is is that mcmanneman paid tribute in his retirement this week to two people from st jude's that had helped him all the time one of them was pork um and the other one i think was um, damian Carroll, and what he worked for he worked with Kyle for a long time i remember he used to work as a, I thought he worked as a butcher but he was delivering delivering um poultry i realized from this thing now poultry uh, which and is motion a long way from,
1: poultry and yeah, which motion
2: yeah is, <laughs> we, poultry was a great name wasn't it poultry in motion which is a long way from you know his his now role as a sports psychologist and go to the olympics with the irish boxing team and everything like that but yeah they do i think they really do it's nice that he mentioned them and I suppose this piece you know, elucidates why he did that and why these two people were so important to him, but also why he was so important to St. Jude's. Because they, it's not a club... Uh, oh, it's, they've had a lot of you know hard luck stories in recent years in Dublin championships, but also they've had very few players who who've got as far as uh, as as the Dublin panel and won All Ireland, and that's why he meant so much to the club. And also, I mean Roy Curtis has a piece of him today. Like he was just that you know absolutely full-hearted, open-hearted player. You know that came through, no All Star. You know got Dublin. You know put got Dublin across the line, but more than a super sub, I think as well. So it is a really nice piece, I think. And I like there's a couple of pieces on Sean O'Leary who sadly died too young this week uh, from Cork there's mm. a couple of nice pieces Philip Lannigan has a nice piece in the, in the mail on Sunday with him as well but I think you know, when you bring it back to club, I think people people from outside Dublin don't realise how important club is to Dublin players. You know, I think they sometimes see Dublin as this big amorphous blob of you know well, you know, well-funded, um, you know, county team, but it's about much more than that. And you know, Dublin clubs are as passionate um, and produce players. You know, uh, are as hard pushed to produce players very often as anybody else.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. It comes across in that piece for sure. The community aspect, which you don't associate with Dublin clubs, is alive and well. Uh, Page 68 of the Mail. Katie McCabe, the Irish captain, she's going to be in an FA Cup final this afternoon for Arsenal against Emma Hayes' Chelsea side. Repeat of last season's decider. 40,000 tickets have already been sold. It's live on the BBC. There's a beautiful symmetry to this in that it was the women's FA Cup final that Katie McCabe watched between Arsenal and Everton. And I know she wasn't the only one. It's amazing. There's quite a few Irish mm. players who reference watching the FA Cup final as kids when Emma Byrne, Kira Grant and Yvonne Tracy an were playing for exactly. Arsenal. There's a whole bunch of them. Niamh Fahi recently I was talking to her and she mentioned as well as like a seminal moment, a realisation that women can play for these great clubs as well across the water and make some kind of a living. And now here we are. Katie McCabe will be playing for Arsenal today. It's live on the BBC. Uh, it's just worth remarking upon uh, because, along with Tenisa Sullivan, we do have two world-class players in the Irish team. She has been named Arsenal's Player of the Year last season. She was in the WSL Team of the Year. Ian Wright calls her his favourite player at the club. She was named Player of the Month for the League in October. She's grabbed a couple of dramatic goals this year as well, which uh, kind of catch the eye online. And she's still only 26, and... What Mark Galler has done here, again, clever move. Go back to where it started. Casey McQuillan, who was her manager at Rohini in Shelburne, has been, well, he's known her a very long time, kind of when she was 15, 16 territory. She played when she was very young for Rohini. He remembers, you know, from the age of 16. And by the time she went to Arsenal, she was 19, 20. And he said, you forgot how young she was. And she came back from a broken leg as well. I didn't realize this, that she had a scholarship at Florida State and she broke her leg. And the scholarship collapsed because of that injury, which I'm sure was a huge blow back in 2014. And he's just charted her all along, obviously, and watched very closely and watched her develop at Arsenal. And kind of an amazing story, really, that she's now maybe the best left sided player, he reckons, in the entire league. And this is increasingly as well a very, very good league, second best in the world and probably pushing for best very soon.
2: Well, and if she wasn't playing in such a star studded lineup in Arsenal, she wouldn't be playing left back or left you know, an attacking left back. Like they've moved her because there is so much talent in that team. But like we saw we saw earlier in the week just what an incredible left foot she has and the accuracy out. And there's a historical link here as well. I mean, you you're right about that link to that generation of Arsenal players and how these players saw them and thought, Oh my god, we can become professional footballers, we can go to these big clubs. Um the other the other interesting link with that is that the, the FA Cup today, which is a, is the delayed one from last year. The reason it's on now is because it it links directly with the 50 years, it's a 50-year anniversary of women being banned from playing football in England. And I I don't think people realise that very often. So there's Mm -hmm. a really interesting historic link with that today. Um, And that's why it's of such significance. Like she does... uh, you know, this is a really, you know, it's a very complimentary piece to her, and I think the thing about her not making that, that getting that scholarship to America, because a lot of people often ask, well, why didn't she go to America? And she broke a leg around the same time she was due to go to Florida State. But um, she, she rarely puts a foot wrong, um, and um, I think that's probably... You know, but one of the really big breaks for her was the was the change of a coach in um, in Arsenal. Joe Monte, Montemuro came into Arsenal and he picked her because the previous manager wasn't picking her, and he just immediately uh, took her on and, and said this player has real real potential. So he has really helped and developed her career, and probably the same with Ireland as well. Um, in the two, the current manager and previous Colin Bell, the previous manager as well. Um, so you know, what I love to see is the fact that. Um she rarely does anything wrong I think um you know even her speech after uh, after the player of the match <laughs> the controversial player of the match during the week um uh, was really good but um she has one tendency which is the only thing you'd ever say is wrong with her and that is she, she has a little tendency to flare up at referees that so she has to be careful with but this is a really <laughs> good piece by Mark Gallagher on just um everything that she's done so far in her career really and how it's um, just at the moment it's gone from strength to strength
1: Yeah Uh, Kieran, I don't know if you got a chance to watch the games during the week. Uh, The quality of her left foot really stands out. Probably less so in the WSL, but when she's playing for Ireland and she gets the ball, there is a sense that something is on.
0: Um, Unfortunately, I was one of the few people who only saw the scoreline and thought, oh God, what's going on here? And then I saw the English game was 20-0, and I'm like, oh, this is not a good week for international women's football. Um, But I I suppose I've I've seen other games where she's played, and I've interviewed her a couple of times through the years, and... um, I thought Gary McCabe her brother was a great player but she's obviously stepped up and taken the the family trophy away and um sorry against Slovakia and she scored that very important goal and she knows a lot more than I do about the the the, the women's game and the, and the team think they could even get more out of her um I think the 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 the, the management of the Irish national team is sometimes a bit this is what my friend says I'm passing it on as gospel a bit more conservative and and kind of of the Trapattoni mold and if if, if we could get more out of Katie they could they could probably do better so it'll be interesting to see what happens next year with with a couple of big games they've got coming up but I found it interesting that she's already started her coaching badges yeah young being captain um having achieved so much already um to be doing that at such a young age is, is kind of incredible um and it's interesting as well you know as we said there about you know the Irish girls you know, young girls seeing um, Emma Hayes and sorry Emma Byrne and and, and Kira Grant and those guys, players years ago. It, it almost feels a little like the olden days for the Irish men when you could see you know Niall Quinn and different players Stapleton playing in FA Cup finals. It's not really this. This might be a great scope for for a lot of younger players to see people like her, not just playing but starring in a game like this and to have it. I think it's is it on BBC One. Yeah i mean to have to have that exposure is huge and to have irish irish players involved and 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 not just a a part you know a passing role it's it's a key role in the team is great and um yeah, yeah, i just wonder you know if 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 it's a it's a bit of a time that we should really embrace that we have the players playing for the big teams because as we know with the men when 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 sports grow and the, you know the amount of countries getting involved. And the amount of teams becoming involved and, and the, the league grows bigger you might not have as many in in years to come so it's probably something to embrace mm.
1: on the 20 nil and the 11 nil and there were a tranche of 7 8 9 10 nils as well around europe clean i thought it was striking yes. uh vera power came out and said well this isn't good i mean patently isn't good but no. she she was saying that she's been warning for a while now of two tiers emerging where lots of countries will be progressive and put money into female sports and others won't and UEFA need to step in or somebody needs to do something here because frankly, yes, it's very exciting. 11 nil is great and you get to see Ireland score goals mm-hmm. and that's fun and everything. But Cleaner, in terms of a product, the women's game can't have that kind of a dichotomy.
2: No, and imagine waking up the next morning as a Georgian player and Macedonian player and Albanian player who are all getting beaten by double figures this week and last week as well. Northern Ireland beat somebody really heavily as well, I remember. Um, No, it's not good. But it does challenge. It challenges UEFA and FIFA to look at it and say, okay, as we've seen with basketball, you know, where there are several tiers, we've seen Ireland just move back into the top tier. You have to have two tiers because that's not going to develop the game in weaker countries. You're just going to make them give up. You know, it's just a ridiculous situation. And it's really interesting as well, um, what Kieran is saying, like about... About enjoying the Irish players, you know, getting um, getting to play with the big teams in in the Women's Super League at the moment. The reality is that Women's Super League has had a flood of talent come in from abroad, and actually, some Irish players have been displaced in that to lesser clubs. And Katie McCabe is one of the few who's managed to hold her own because that's the quality she has.
1: Guys, we are just out of time. Didn't get to everything we'd uh, planned to, but uh, we. Got there in the end, largely with thanks to technology. Next time a government minister comes out and says the broadband in this country is just fine, we can play them back this uh, paper review, I think. Please, yeah. please, please, Ciar- Ciar- Joe, do. Kieran O'Rallagh and Cliona Foley. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Gerd.